Hi, everyone. My name is Paul. For those of you, I'm usually at the back there behind the sound desk. I'm the guy you see when there's feedback and everybody looks around. That's me. Um, yeah, but I've been here for a number of years. And I just want to say it is such a privilege to be here. Um, thank you to Stan and the elders for just giving me this opportunity to share what I believe God's put on my heart. Um, and I really hope that it blesses you. Um, this morning I want to stay on the topic of the seed and salt. I'm going to read from a text in Matthew 2 um, and try and look at it from the perspective of seed and salt and how we can apply that. Uh, I've got a few points and then I'd like to share some personal experiences with you uh, from my own life. This is a very well-known scripture, um, but don't think of the Sunday school image when I read this. Try and picture what it would have been like for Jesus at the time of Jesus, the disciples, you know, the sandals and the flowy cloaks. We've got so many resources. We've got such a good understanding nowadays of what it was like in Jesus' time compared to 50 years ago. If you look at the Jesus movie from 50 years ago, compared to the Passion and the Chosen, those type of movies, think of that when I read this scripture. Okay, I'm going to read from um, Mark 2. I think Shepard's got it up there. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people had gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. He was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive the sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit what they were thinking, sorry, that they were thinking like this within themselves, and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So I picture the scene in Capernaum. It was a small little village, I believe there was about 1,500 people living in this little village. Jesus was preaching in a house, not in a big church, not in an auditorium like this. It was just somebody's house. There were probably about 50 people crammed in a tiny little uh, room, living area. This was way before COVID. There was no social distancing going on there. The door was blocked. You couldn't even get in. And that's where we find the four friends. They were carrying their friend to see Jesus. 
Maybe they'd heard earlier that Jesus was in town and they thought, this is the opportunity we've got to get this friend to Jesus, to get him healed so that he can walk again. They get to the house, but they can't get in. They look at this and they go, we're not getting in there, let's go around the back. They carry the friend up the stairs at the back. There was a flat living area. Most of the houses of the time, the roof was a flat living area where you could chill out in the evening when it's hot. Um, they somehow managed to get him up that narrow, narrow staircase and they decide, let's dig through this roof. So up until this point, I can follow the story, but it gets a bit weird from here. Um, I have so many questions. Like, what, how did they dig? Were they digging with their hands? Did they have tools with them? Did they start digging and one guy goes, look, let me run home and get something to help me dig? What was the roof made out of? You could walk on it, it could support people, it must have been some compacted clay or something. Um, a lot more difficult than just taking a couple of tiles off our houses and just going through. What was underneath the clay? Was there some kind of supporting structure? I'm not an engineer, but there must have been some beams or something. Did they have to cut through it? How did they get him past the beams? I, like I say, I've got lots of questions. How long did it take? And how long was Jesus still preaching while they were digging through the roof? Whatever the case is, it was hard going. I'm sure their hands got tired. They were digging. One of the guys might have had a makeshift hammer. He might have hit his thumb a couple of times and tried not to swear too loudly with Jesus so close. Um, there was some work involved here. And I think this is the first lesson we can learn from this uh, passage. If we're going to be seed and salt to the world, then there's going to be a cost. It's not always going to be easy. There's going to be situations where we need to get our hands dirty, where we need to remove obstacles, obstacles in people's way for them to be able to get to Jesus. You might get tired. You might get to the point where you're thinking, is this even going to work? What am I doing? Is there any chance that this is actually going to work, this plan of mine? The second thing that I believe we can learn from, from this story is that the friends had faith. Jesus commended the friends for their faith. They believed that if they could get Jesus... Uh, if they could get them, their friend to Jesus, Jesus would heal them. James 2 verse 14 says, Without faith, uh, sorry, faith without works is dead. And this is such a good example of what faith looks like. It's not somehow summoning up some belief in your mind. It's actually doing something. I once heard a story about a, a guy on a tightrope. He'd put a tightrope in a dangerous area, don't know how the story goes, and there was an audience and he was walking across the tightrope, everybody applauded, yay, then he got a wheelbarrow and he walked across and everybody, yay, well done. And then he said, 
do you guys believe that I can put one of you in the wheelbarrow and walk you across? Yes, yes, you can do it. And then he said, well, okay, come. Who of you wants to get into the wheelbarrow? Let's see. And that's where it becomes faith, where you actually have to do something to show that you believe. And that is what, that's what these friends did for their, um, for their paralyzed friend. They were prepared to take a risk. The next thing I wonder about is Jesus. What was he thinking while all of this was going on? I know he's humble and he's not insecure like me, but I wonder what he was thinking when he saw everybody stop looking at him delivering his sermon and start looking up at the ceiling. I wonder at which point he decided, look, this, is, this isn't working. Let me just stop preaching because, and wait for them to finish because nobody's listening to me anyway. I wonder what his sermon was about. We don't hear about the sermon. I wonder how long he spent preparing for that sermon. It must have been a good sermon because there was a big crowd and it was Jesus after all, so it must have been a really good sermon, but we don't hear what the sermon's about. I think the people that went home weren't talking about the three alliterated points that Jesus made in his sermon, I think they were talking about the guy that got healed. And what I believe we learn from this is sometimes it's more important what we do than what we say. When we want to be seed and salt to the world, we think, what must I say? What can I say? And sure enough, there are things to say at times, but Sometimes it's more important what we do and being Jesus to the people around us more than just what we say. The point of this, of this, of this sermon that Jesus uh, preached that day, I don't think was his sermon point. I believe it was to show the world who he was, that he had the ability to forgive sin, that he was the Son of God, and also bring healing to this man that so desperately needed it. I wonder how the day started for the paralytic man. Did he know Jesus was in town? Did he wake up in the morning and frantically create a WhatsApp group and add all his friends to come and fetch him? Or maybe it was their idea. Maybe they came and fetched him and dragged him off. Was he embarrassed? He was lowered down on this mat in front of a small town. He probably knew most of the people in that room. Was he embarrassed? Did he wonder if this was going to work? Was he nervous? We don't know. We know very little about the paralytic. In a strange way, it's almost like the paralytic man is the least important character in the story. We hear about the four friends, we hear about their faith, later we hear about the Pharisees, we hear about um, Jesus rebuking them, and Jesus teaching this lesson through this whole story, but we know very little about the paralytic man. 
What we do know about him is that he wasn't able to get to Jesus by himself and he needed to be with Jesus to be healed. Also, what we know about him is that he had some good friends. He had friends that were prepared to be inconvenienced, to put aside their Saturday morning and whatever plans they had in order to get breakthrough for their friend. The lesson I get from the paralytic man is that to be the salt and the seed, we need good friends around us. We need the kind of friends that we can rely on that will carry us when we can't walk. We need the kind of friends that um, will contend for our breakthrough. We know that your Facebook friends isn't a good indication of how many friends you have. Maybe a good measure of, of a friend is, do you have somebody that's prepared to dig through a roof for you? You don't need a hundred friends. This guy had four friends, and that was enough. If you have four good friends that will fight for you and will carry you when you need to be carried, you're doing really well. So I'm really loving this um, seed and salt uh, series that we're doing. So you get this Himalayan salt, comes from Pakistan or India, it's thousands of years old, it's from the mountains, but I'm convinced it tastes exactly like this. <laughs> Tori disagrees with me, we usually have this salt in our house, but I'm convinced you can't taste the difference. If anybody wants to do a blind test afterwards, come see me. I'm happy to be proved wrong. But the thing about seed and salt is it's not about the seed and it's not about the salt. Think about the most amazing restaurant you've been to. Think about the most incredible meal you've ever had in your life. You don't remember the salt. But if there wasn't salt, you'd definitely remember it for being bland. The salt is there, not because, the salt is there to bring out the flavor. The same with seed. So this is a, um, you probably can't see it, but this is a mustard seed, and this is a broccoli seed. I didn't know what broccoli looked like, seeds looked like until I went to the shop yesterday, but it looks exactly the same. I can't tell the difference. If you're a gardener, maybe you can tell the difference, but it's not about the seed. It's a, it's a very insignificant looking little seed. It's a little black seed. That's all it is. We don't remember the seed. We remember the broccoli or the mustard tree that grows. That's what's important, is not the seed and the salt. Just like the paralytic, sometimes we need to realize that we are not the most important character in the story. We have the opportunity to be part of God's story and to be part of the plan 
we can be the seed that produces a tree, maybe long after we are gone. We can be the salt that brings out something else that God is doing. But the story isn't all about us. We're just part of a much bigger story. The last lesson that I think we can learn from the paralytic man is that we need to be with Jesus to walk into his calling for us. Without Jesus, this would just be an embarrassing story for the man. He was let down on this mat in front of all his friends. But we need to be in the right place and with Jesus. We need Jesus' power because without him, we can't do anything. The last person in the story that I wonder about is the homeowner. (laughs) Was Jesus staying over the night? Why was Jesus in his house? Um, What did he think about all these people cramming into his house? Were there muddy feet on his Persian carpet? Using up all his toilet paper? But most of all, what did he think about this hole in his ceiling? Hey, what are you doing? It's my roof. For the paralytic to get healed, this man's roof had to be damaged. He had to be inconvenienced. He had to go and rebuild his roof. And it probably cost him something. But because he was prepared to do that, Jesus could use that situation to heal the paralytic. So a number of years ago, Tori and I felt that God called us to go to China. We had some very specific words that God had spoken to us, and a friend of mine had been there previously uh, for a year teaching English, He was back in South Africa, he'd got married to a Chinese girl, he was back in South Africa, and when he said, we're going back to my wife's hometown, we felt that God said we should go with him. They moved back to their hometown in Fujian, and that's where we had to put our faith into practice, like the paralytic man's friends. Tori and I had been married for about two years. We both had jobs. I had a promising career in a corporate world. And we resigned. We didn't know how everything was going to work out. We hadn't planned everything. We resigned because we believed that God wanted us to go. We started doing TEFL courses. We bought tickets. We didn't have jobs yet. We bought tickets to Fujian. And God provided. He provided us all with teaching jobs at the same university, Um, and the Chinese university organized all our visas and all the paperwork. So as we were going there, we thought that we were taking Jesus to China. We had some kind of super special assignment from God, and that we were going to take Jesus to China. When we got there, we realized Jesus was already in China. (laughs) He was already doing stuff there. 
There were Christians, there were small churches, there were gatherings. We realized maybe we're not the most important people in the story. We just had the opportunity to be part of God's story and what he was already doing in China and the things that he was already um, in the, and moving in the people's lives that he was already moving. We started a Sunday meeting, just Ashton and Lily, and his parents were also there. We lived in the next-door city, and every Friday we had to take a two-hour chicken bus to get there. Um, people in South Africa understand what a chicken bus is. Uh, soon people started joining our group, and an English teacher, a Chinese girl that was learning English joined us, and she started translating for us. And soon we had this meeting, we had a gathering, and every Sunday we used to meet in Ashton's home. Um, we used to spend the whole weekend with them, and they never had a weekend to themselves, because we were always there visiting the whole weekend. I think Ashton felt a little bit like the man who had the roof uh, broken, and every week he had to repair his house after we had been there. But he allowed us to use that space so that Jesus could work there. I was teaching English at a university. I didn't really dig my job there. Uh, I had to teach the same lesson 12 times every week, repeating myself over and over and over. And I found it very boring. We felt isolated. We were, China was very foreign. It's a very secular culture. And we could hardly communicate. There weren't many people that spoke English, and we never managed to learn Chinese. But with God's help, we were able to persevere. Um, and I believe we made a difference to many people. But I can really say that without friends, we would never have been able to do it. Without people like Ashton and Lily being there with us, without people coming from South Africa, spending their hard-earned cash to get on a plane to fly all the way to China, we would never have been able to make it. People like Vinnie and Sarah came to visit us when Tia was born. Neil and Ingrid, Monty and Stephanie, Doug and Sheena came to visit us. My mother-in-law and my sister came to visit us. Their visits really had such a profound impact on us, and it really carried us through the time we were there. We also had some really wonderful Chinese friends. We're still in touch with a lot of them. When Tia was about two years old, she got really sick, she was dehydrated, and we had to rush her off to hospital. It took us an hour to get to the hospital, and when we got there, there was nobody that could speak English. So we had to phone somebody at midnight, wake them up, and get them to translate for us. While she was in hospital, one of the, one of the ladies from our, uh, our church had a doctor friend that worked there. She spoke English, and she could ask her to come and check on us and just talk to us and make sure that we were okay. To small things like that that meant the world for us when we were going through times like that. 
We were there for about five years, and then we moved back to South Africa. Sometimes I wonder, what was all that about? Why did we go there? What did we achieve? But I know that we were being the seed and the salt to people in China. We'd learned such an amazing love. We've learned the Father's love in this community. We'd learned His grace. And we were able to share that with friends in China. I really believe that God does things in your life in a different way when you travel for Him. When you are away from home, when you've inconvenienced, when you're out of your comforts and your routines, that's when He often breaks through in our lives. For me, I grew up with a terrible fear of speaking in public. And it took God sending me all the way to China to teach a class of 50 students every day to be able to overcome that uh, fear. I remember my first class, 50 students, 50 Chinese teenagers. They looked terrified. Many of them had never seen a foreigner before in their life. But I can tell you, I was more terrified than them. The second lesson looked exactly the same. I was convinced they were playing a trick on me. They just got up and rearranged their seats. All the same black hair, dark eyes, I was convinced of it. Also, I was preaching regularly in our group. And I really believe it was experiences like that that made it possible for me to overcome that and to be able to speak here today. You can ask anybody that's been on a trip, on a ministry trip, or been to another place how that trip has impacted them. It doesn't have to be difficult. You can go to somebody that's planted a church, go to an equip time, there's a team going from Glenridge to uh, Lesotho. Come with us. Join the team. There's a whole bunch of equips. Some of them are close by. This is a way that you can be part of a bigger story. It's when we, it's when we go and we decide to not... that. It's when we go that we're less focused on ourselves. We're less focused on our own troubles and what's going on in our life, and we're giving of ourselves. And I can tell you that God will break into your life. Let me tell you another story about how God works when you go to the nations. Ashton's father was there. He had suffered from depression his whole life. I knew him growing up, and he was always the old woman that sat in the same chair watching TV day and night. That's the only place I ever saw him, was just staring at the TV. After one year in China, he was a different person. God had completely healed him of his depression. He used to ride around the little village on his bicycle, waving at everybody, smiling, talking to them in Afrikaans, 
He'd given everybody an Afrikaans name. That's Kubis, that's Hendrik. Hello, Hendrik. He was a completely changed person. And it took him going to China to get that healing. The thing about digging through a roof is it's not complicated. It might be difficult, it might be hard work, but it's quite simple. For us, going to China wasn't complicated. We didn't do anything clever. There was nothing amazing about what we did. We just obeyed what God had told us to do. And we went where he wanted us to be, and we saw the fruit in the people that we met and the friends that we made there. So I, I don't know where you are this morning, which one of these people in the story you associate most with. Maybe the homeowner, maybe the homeowner or the friends, or the paralytic. But I really believe that God can break through whatever roof is in your life to be able to get to him. I believe that God can heal you where you need to be healed. Maybe there's somebody here that's never had that experience of meeting Jesus. That's never come to Jesus that he could forgive them and heal them. Or maybe you have been forgiven, but you feel like you've walked away and you realize you need to come back to Jesus. Please come to the front after the meeting and come talk to me or one of the leaders. We'd love to pray with you. In closing, I just want to leave three thoughts with you. Number one, step out in faith. Think about the things that God has called you to. Think about the promises. It was amazing the prophetic words we had about promises um, and, and prophetic words about your life. Think about what those things are. And then what are the practical steps of faith that you can take? Number two, get friends around you. This is an amazing community. There are amazing friends here. Don't wait for them to find you. Maybe you feel you don't have any friends. Well, go and find some friends. Go to home groups. Get involved with uh, uh, one of the volunteers groups here. Come to the times, the worship times and the forge times. Or maybe you need to be that friend to somebody else that needs carrying through a difficult time. Be that friend to them. And number three, go to the nations. I believe God's called each one of us to go somewhere. Christian shared so wonderfully a couple of weeks ago about going. You don't have to go to China for five years. You can go and visit somebody that's planted a church. You can go for a weekend or a week, but go somewhere. Go on a ministry trip. There's often ministry trips going to Mozambique. Put your hand up. Get involved. Or go to an equip. There's a number of equips around. 
get involved, go to those equip times. Get some friends around you, step out in faith, and go. Thank you.